Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Kara Natterson talking about her book, Decoding Boys, the new science behind the subtle art of raising sons. Kara is a pediatrician, a speaker, a consultant, and New York Times best-selling author of multiple parenting and health books, including The Care and Keeping of You, which is a series for girls with more than 6 million copies in print, and Guy Stuff, which is the boys' version. She also founded Worryproof Consulting to give parents open-ended time to discuss what their own doctors can't squeeze into a visit. We're going to be talking today about how to handle silent boys who won't talk to you about what's going on with them. We're going to look at how to discuss body and puberty-related issues, sex and porn, as well as everything from violence to video games to Fortnite to lifting weights. Really excited to speak with Dr. Natterson today about her work and specifically about the importance of communication, about how much it matters to talk about these things and to keep the conversation going. And we're going to look specifically at why that is and how you can do that today on the show. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. The book is Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons. And um, this is not your first book. You've been writing about uh, issues in this um, constellation for a long time, but now specifically um, you felt that it was time for a book on boys. Why is that? Well, I think you probably have to kind of go back through my own personal trajectory to get to where I landed. So um, I'm a pediatrician and I was in practice for many years. And when I transitioned out of the practice of clinical medicine, I ended up uh, moving into writing. And at first I wrote parenting books, but um, in 2011, I ended up uh, joining forces with American Girl, the doll company, but also the a relatively unknown publisher behind the cult classic book, The Care and Keeping of You, which is a body book for girls, um, walking them through what's going to happen to their body as they go through puberty. And um, I've spent the last 10 years working with them. And I had the opportunity to update the original book. And then we've written uh, four more in the series. And from day one, I said to American Girl, what about boys? Uh, and my editor over there, who is a mom of a son, said, I know, right? <laughs> but we're American girl. So 
that's that's what about boys. Right. But she and I kind of had this uh, five-year, um, I wouldn't call it a battle because everyone was on our side, yeah, yeah. Uh, but a five-year path to um, convincing everyone at the company that the process of growing up and transforming both in your body and your brain and your social world and your emotional life uh, is, it's very not gendered, right? I mean, parts are parts and probably about 20%, I would say, of the puberty process is gender specific, but the vast, vast majority is uh, experientially the same. It doesn't matter what your gender. And so they gave in. And um, about four years ago, I published a book called Guy Stuff, which was the caring, keeping of you for boys. And it was right in time for my own son to head into puberty. My daughter is two years older. When she saw that book kind come out, she was thrilled because her life was, you know, sort of a mix of pride and humiliation when your mom writes the puberty books. Uh, and right, so it's not going to have a bunch of stories about me in it. Yeah. Oh my God. She, the books came and she opened the box and she was so ecstatic. She flipped through one of the books and she said, Rye, Rye, come here. I want to read with you because now it's your turn. <laughs> it was called the erection section. She was like, Oh my God. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so I wrote guy stuff and I was out on the road um, talking to families about guy stuff and publicizing guy stuff. And, um, and what became very clear to me, and at this point, my son was about eight or nine, maybe a little older. And what became clear to me is that parents were having a vastly different experience raising their boys than they were raising their girls. And I've known this from practice, but it really as, as someone who was out on the road talking to parents about a book written for their boys, um, what parents were begging me for was a conversation about conversation. Yeah. Um, they didn't know how to talk to their boys. And, um, you know, there's been a very palpable difference in the past 20 or 30 years in how we talk to girls about their bodies. Girls have, have gotten all this language and all this voice and they talk about periods and they talk about boobs and, and everyone's totally good with it. And in fact, parents expect their daughters to talk to them. And if their daughters don't talk to them, the parents sort of insist on it. Yeah. But there's no corollary for boys. And parents were sort of begging me to talk about that. And, you know, I had a boy who was heading into puberty. And so um, it was personally very interesting to me. And it was professionally very interesting. And so I took on the challenge of writing a book, trying to understand why boys go quiet when they go into puberty and what we as parents can do to help them through it. Because language, as it turns out, is one of the single greatest resources that we have to keep ourselves safe and healthy. And you talk in this book about how a lot of boys go quiet when they hit the puberty years, or there's at least a phase that's a silent phase, and they're just not saying that much, and um, that it is a phase, and they'll go through it, and they'll come out of it on the other end. But you also write that um, we, as parents, don't necessarily have to accept their silence. And you write, if we fully accept our son's silence and don't insist on keeping a conventional, a conversational thread alive, trust me when I say we'll face a much steeper climb when a heavyweight topic rears its head. 
What do you mean by not accepting their silence? And uh, why do you say that? Yeah. Well, let me start by saying there's always a parent who's listening who says, well, my son talks to me. He's totally verbal and we share everything. And so none of this applies. And um, I would argue that um, almost all boys go quiet to some degree. Yeah. Um, the, the most talkative ones, maybe the volume comes down just a little right. and they still talk, but it comes down a little. There are also a lot of girls that go quiet. So um, again, you know, speaking to the point of not gendering. Um, but, you know, my feeling about quiet at this point is that as parents, we are so conditioned to expect our boys to shut their doors mm-hmm. and to shut us out, yep. at least for some period of time. That when they do it, what we say is, oh, that's just puberty. Don't that's do what that phase. Do. Yep. Right? So I'm just going to ride this. I'm going to respect my son. Right. I'm going to give him his privacy. And when he emerges out the other side, then I'll reconnect with him. Yeah. And it's all going to be okay. When I talk to the boys, the boys don't want to be behind those doors all the time. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they really want to be behind those doors. Sure. Um, and that's why you should always knock before you which is a very important piece of parenting advice. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is that um, most boys actually like being engaged by their parents. And yeah. they take their parents' silence not as respect but as disinterest. Yeah. And it becomes a barrier to communication between parents and kids. And, you know, that's a barrier you don't want to have to overcome if you don't need to, because there are big ticket items down the road, whether it's conversations around sex or drugs or friendships or, or stress and anxiety or, 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 right. I could give you a list of a hundred things. You want to have a relationship with any and all of your children where they can come to you and talk to you. If the modeling is, it's okay when you shut the door, I'm just going to leave you be indefinitely. That shuts down that conversational thread. And boys will often tell me they then try to find that somewhere else. One thing that parents are, are somewhat aware of as their kids become teenagers is they're talking to their friends. They're just not talking to you. Right. Right. And so what's that? And some of that is normal developmentally. That's what adolescents should do. But some of it is learned because they're responding to the behavior that you're putting in their direction. Yeah. And it's not necessarily realistic to think that they're not going to resist these kinds of conversations. You know, people don't like to do things that are awkward and not fun. And um, so... This is not necessarily something that your kids are just going to love and say, oh, thank you so much for bringing this up. This is great. Really appreciate it. Um, But they're going to learn if you don't that all they have to do is put up a little resistance and you'll leave them alone. You won't press the issue Um, and they'll learn that they can kind of get out of stuff and uh, how to, you know, uh, not engage with you about things that they don't want to talk about. Um, And so, yeah. Um, yeah, do not expect a gold star from your kid when you reach out to yeah, right. not giving you that. Um, but on the other hand, you are you are absolutely right that um, over time, uh, it may take five or ten tries on any given conversation. But over time, if you are a little bit relentless, kind but relentless, um, they will eventually realize you really care, and they'll start opening up. Some some of them just a little, um, yeah. and some of them a lot. This is not what you want from your parents that 
they just never mm-hmm. gave up on you and um yeah. even when you were kind of an asshole they like just kept at it and hundred uh, yeah, percent yeah right and and frankly for for your parent to be so honest with you that they can say here's where i've behaved badly as your parent here's where you're behaving like a little jerk as my kid, right? I mean, how do you say that in a loving way? Only honestly and openly if you have a dialogue. If your whole dynamic with your kid is lecturing them and it's a one-way street, yeah, right. it doesn't work out very well when you're saying something that you think is loving and protective and they don't take it that way. So the, the back and forth is, so the first step is how do you talk to them? And the second bigger step is how do you listen? Right? How do you, how do you talk with them instead of just, you know, one direction? So one of the big questions I think with regard to adolescence and puberty in general is when do you need to start talking about it? When is the point of no return that it's too late now? Um, and when does all this stuff even start? And there's kind of this folk wisdom that it's a lot earlier in girls. Girls kind of start this process a lot earlier and go through the growth spurt and the boys are later on. And so maybe you're good, kind of, you can wait until your boys are maybe a little older until you see their, like, maybe the hair start a little bit, the voice start to kind of uh, break, the shoulders start to broaden and the smell, you start to smell them. And then you're like, okay, now it's time to have the talk. So let me break those apart and answer them all because they're really good questions. The first is um, if you have a kid in your life, if you're a parent, grandparent, trusted adult who has a kid in their life who is 15 and you're not talking to them, start talking. <laughs> if you have a kid who's 12, start talking to them. Yeah. If you have a kid who's seven, start talking to them. Mm. If you have a kid who's four, start talking to them. I mean, you're going to talk to a four-year-old about really different things than you're going to talk to a 15-year-old right. about. But the, the idea of keeping open lines of communication um, it is as important when they're little as it is when they're older. And if you haven't started, you're never too late. Let me just emphasize that a hundred times because that's the biggest sort of worry I get in yeah. response to telling parents to talk to their kids. Well, I've never done that. Did I miss the boat? No, you, you did not miss the boat. If your kid is 25 and you still haven't done it, you go, I probably should have done this a little while ago, but I, you know what? I'm just trying to be a great parent. So here we go. Um, but start the conversations now. Um, Puberty and when puberty begins and all that, it's a really, really big topic that I'll kind of boil down to a few sentences here. I write a lot about it in the book. Um, But the take-home message is that it's a lot earlier now than it ever used to be. Um, The average age for girls in the United States to begin showing signs of puberty is between age eight and nine. And depending upon ethnicity, black girls in this country, if they are starting to develop breasts at, you know, age seven, seven and a half, that is considered normal. Um, Boys, yeah. And boys, the um, onset of puberty is actually almost just as early. Um, It is between nine and 10, depending upon what your ethnicity is. And uh, it didn't used to be that way. It has okay. this, this timeline has marched backwards by a couple of years over the last 30 or 40 year chunk. Um, 
And no, I don't know why. <laughs> um, whole, whole other kettle of fish, probably everything in our environment, what we eat, what we drink, what we breathe. There are a lot of really smart people working on that. Um, but it's important to realize a couple things about the earlier onset of puberty. One is that um, it's like taffy. So it's starting earlier, but it's not going any faster. And in fact, it's probably going slower because those landmark moments of puberty, particularly girls getting their first period, those moments have not really budged at all. So girls are still getting their first period around 12, 12 and a half, but now they're developing breasts for instead of two or three years before they get their period, it's four or five years. So this whole run-up to these milestones of puberty is much slower, which is an interesting fact. The other thing, and I think equally interesting, is that most parents of boys have no clue that their boys are in it. Right. And that's because boy puberty is dictated largely by testosterone. Testosterone is just a hormone. It tells your body to grow and change so that you go from boy to man. Testosterone is manufactured in the testicles. Those are the testosterone factories. Sure. In order to get enough testosterone on board to go through full-fledged puberty, you got to get the factory up and running. Right. And that takes a little while. And so the first several months or even a couple of years of puberty in a boy might just be testicular growth, right? You don't see anything else. You don't yeah. see any any broadening of the shoulders. You don't see, hear the voice change. Hair is a whole different issue. It's a little bit of a red herring um, because hair growth is actually not a marker of puberty. It just happens to happen at the same time as puberty, which is very complicated mm. for people. Um, me too, it really throws you. Um, but um, but boy puberty happens way before we notice it. And you know, I, I when I speak to audiences, I always have a parent in the crowd who's got a nudist who's running around at their house and they're like, oh, I knew when my kid was in puberty. But for every one nudist, there are like 99 completely private boys who shut the door and won't let you see them. And what I say to those parents is, that's fine. You do not need to know when they go into puberty. I am a pediatrician. I write about all this stuff. And even I didn't look when my son was starting to go through puberty. And I trust me, I was tempted to understand it. That's very scarring. Yeah, so right. if you've got a private kid, uh, your pediatrician can look. They can do an exam and they can tell you when your son is tipping into puberty. But it it is happening a lot earlier than you think. And there's significance to that because the hormones don't just circle through the bloodstream below the neck. They go up into the brain and they circulate around the brain and they impact the way kids think and feel. And that, when you start paying attention, you go, oh yeah, I see puberty in the snarkiness, in the mood swings and right, all that kind of stuff. And now you start to give yourself permission to recognize that your kid is on a new drug and that drug is testosterone for boys. It is estrogen and progesterone for girls and those are powerful. And what about using those as uh, to induce puberty in late bloomers? Or can you like supplement with some of those hormones you're talking about when you have a kid who is um, getting into later teens and they haven't really started this process yet? Yeah. 
I, I write a lot about late bloomers because we talk so much about what's happening earlier and earlier, but the kids who are on the later end, that's hard. Um, it's socially really hard, right? Everyone around you has grown, you know, sort of in height and, and all their features have changed and they look more adult and, and here you are and you just look like a young child and it's, um, your brain is aging. What you want to do is chronologically appropriate, but you don't look the part. And that's very hard. Um, the definition of late bloomer for a boy is a boy whose testicles have not started growing by 14. Okay. And so what I say to parents whose 12 and 13 year old boys, right? Seventh and eighth grade, they look young. All the other kids are, seem to be changing. Those kids aren't. I say to them, take your son to the pediatrician and have the pediatrician examine him. Because if his testicles are starting to grow, you're good. Okay. He's on the later end. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? If by 14, the testicles haven't started to grow at all, then sometimes you do need medical intervention. You need a little dose of testosterone to jumpstart the machinery. Um, and it can be enormous. There are, um, there are endocrinologists, hormone doctors for kids who will sometimes recommend testosterone younger than 14. And um, I think that's totally appropriate when that happens, because if you think about it, go back to your eighth grade self for a second, right? So not the most fun year. And now imagine being the only one pretty much who has nothing going on physically. Yeah. Um, that's pretty late to wait. And if the kid is starting to have some distress about it when he's 12 or 13, it's fine to take him earlier. And if someone deems it appropriate, um, to start thinking about treating him a, a little bit earlier or to, you know, proof that, Hey, no, everything's working. It's just taking its time and we don't need to medically treat it. Um, is very reassuring for a boy. Because, wow, that seems like really detrimental to your just self-concept and your idea of who you are in the world to be going through such a formative phase of your life like and feeling like you're sort of out an outsider or not having the same experience as everybody else. Um, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. You know, I, I write a lot about the show Big Mouth, um, which is a very interesting show. I really like Big Mouth. Um you know, I always say it's wrapped in an incredibly inappropriate set of premises, but it's, um, and, and the storylines are crazy and the language and the this and that, but at the end of the day, it's the story of an early bloomer and a late bloomer and everything they put in that show is medically accurate. Everything, every theme that they deal with, and they talk a lot about what it is to be a late bloomer. And it is, it's, it, it makes boys who they are when they're men in many ways, uh, who have gone through the process, it definitely impacts um, the person they become changes um, you forever. Yeah, it but it's to. but it's but it's hard, and um, you know, it's it's really an interesting path. You talk to late blooming guys as adults, and and they they're very there's a large um, community online who talks about the experience, and it's it's pretty interesting to read. And and the reason I point out late blooming boys especially is that girls tend to go through puberty earlier than boys, so the last of the last yeah, girls right. are done. Before the last boy right. even begins. You're the so last boy the in last your class to go through puberty. I mean, you are just hard. out yeah. there on your own. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And being the, this is what I always say. Okay. Being the first to go through puberty. Oh my God. That's so hard. Being the last to go through puberty. That's so hard. And being in the middle. Well, that's so hard. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, it's puberty. 
puberty. You have a really interesting section in here on brain changes that occurring. And one thing that I marked was the limbic system versus the prefrontal cortex and specifically the differences in myelination and how myelination sort of starts in the center of the brain and kind of works its way out. So during the teenage years, you have this situation where, and uh, I love this line, you say, that means if two messages are sent simultaneously, one to the limbic system and one to the prefrontal cortex, then in the tween or teen brain, the message going to the limbic system will arrive much faster, 3,000 times faster. That is a lot faster. Explains everything so, about the decisions wow. we make in middle and high school and college, right? So when um, you're trying to figure out, yeah, what to do next, your emotions kick in three thousand times faster than your logic, basically. Yeah. And so basically. then we, as a parent, say, "What were you thinking? What was going through your head when you made this decision?" Like, I, mm. I don't know. That didn't happen until three thousand times after the impulse to do the thing occurred. Um, yeah. Right. Whenever I teach kids about that, they're so happy they go home and they're like, it wasn't my phone, it was (laughs) my brain. Uh, But but that wasn't the point of writing that. I actually wrote that chapter so that kids in middle and high school could read it Mm. and understand what was happening in their brain so that they could actually then start using tools to be able to think and make smart choices. So when you think about how fast a message is sent to the emotional part of the brain, and you compare it with how fast a message is sent to the rational part of the brain. How do you then get your brain to think rationally? You just give it time. Yes. And 3,000 sounds down. really high, yeah. right? But um, if you count to 10, you're good. Right. If you are thinking about doing something really dumb, and then you count to 10, your prefrontal cortex now has the chance to go, that is so dumb. Don't do it. Right? right. And that's all we need kids to do. Something really interesting in here is you said that well, uh, as a pediatrician, you would often ask teenagers about what conversations they've had with their parents about these topics. And um, they pretty much universally say, nope, haven't talked about really any of this. Sex, nope. Uh, Body change, no, not really haven't, no. But then when you ask the parents the same question, about 100% of them say, oh yeah, of course. We've talked about this stuff a lot. And I thought this was fascinating because this, uh, the lab that I worked in before this doing psychology research, we studied alcohol use and we found the exact same thing with parents uh, when we surveyed the teenagers and asked them, you know, what have your parents told you about alcohol use? What are their expectations with regard to how much you're going to drink in college? Um, all of these things, the kids are like, no, I haven't really talked about it. Their expectations are that I'm going to probably drink a lot. You know, they, they know it's college and et cetera. Then when we talk to the parents, they're like, oh, no, no, I've really clearly communicated. We've talked about this a lot. They know they're not supposed to do it. Yeah. And so I think there's just this disconnect in general with a lot of the communication between parents and teenagers where we think that we're coming across to them. We think that we've communicated things to them, 
but they haven't really received it in the same way or they it didn't affect them as much as it affected yeah. us or something yeah so so there are a few things here i mean one is um we used to call the talk the talk you know it was supposed to be the talk about sex yeah. well the talk about anything doesn't work um it's sort of like when your child was a baby um, sometimes you had to try a new food 10 times before they would accept it. Right. So that's how I think about every conversation about everything important, um, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I don't care what it is. Um, you as a parent have to have it eight, 10, 12 times before it sinks in. And kids know that I, you know, it's not that they didn't hear it, but sometimes these conversations are horrifying. Sometimes these conversations are so PG compared to what they're getting from other mediums, right? They are so far beyond what yeah, yeah, you yeah, think right. shining a light on, right? Um, just why it's important to listen and figure out where they are. Um, but, you know, repetition is, is also critical. It really cues your kid that something matters to you. So if you've got a kid who's going off to college, and do you think you've done a great job having the talk about all the safety things and the drugs and the alcohol? It, it might be a good idea to have that conversation like 20 more times. Or maybe have your kid tell you what you think. Yeah, yeah. what have you understood about what I've told yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. What do right. you think that's my right. expectations are? <laughs> that's, that's right. And, and by the way, that is their prefrontal cortex talking. Mm. They are telling you using their rational brain what they know you want to hear. And then they go to the party and it's not their prefrontal mm. cortex that is working. It is their limbic system. It is the emotional center. And so the part that told you what you wanted to hear is not in charge until they're close to 30. And that is a really important conversation to have with them. Thank you for telling me exactly what you think I want to hear. Now let's talk about what you do in real life because I want you to be protected. We're here with Dr. Kara Natterson talking about how to decode teenage boys. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You know, we've all got to acknowledge what they feel, whether or not it's what you feel, it's what they feel. And it takes a lot of bravery for them to share it. So if the first thing we do is shame them, we shut them down. I'm not anti-sex and I don't write from that perspective. I'm just anti someone telling my daughter or my son that a great sex life involves lack of consent, pain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, for parents who are trying to figure out what tools can I give my kids so they can say no without feeling like an outlier, right? We've all been locked inside for a year and pandemic. And there's this fear that as kids break out of the house, it's going to be, you know, kids gone wild and right. How, like, how do I insulate my kid against right. bad decisions? Let them throw you under the bus. Let them say, oh my God, my mom drug tests me. Mm. What a Great. You, mom or dad, do not need any more best friends, especially 14, 15, 16, 17 year old best friends. You do not need them. So let your kid make you look bad to yeah. save him or herself. And um, there are lots of those strategies, but that's probably my favorite is, you know, dude, I, you know, either I'm allergic to it, I'm on another medicine that's going to react to it, or 
my parents are crazy. They dark test me. I mean, I tell my kids to tell everyone I'm crazy. I really don't care. That <laughs> That's what keeps them. And then they wink at me and they're like, yeah, yeah. We just tell them that. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Cause you're not crazy at all. Mom. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.